0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Daniel Paris. I am the host of New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Robert Atkinson, uh, author of Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Myth of Small Business, a book that just came out with or came out last year with MIT Press. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for, for, uh, for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me so your your you know your book and your argument and the title uh is immediately designed and very effective at getting a lot of attention we've all most of us have been raised on the notion of of uh small is beautiful both as a book and as an intellectual concept uh and this is a striking counter argument, and I love striking counter arguments in a period in which. Um, I work in finance and investment. It's all about figuring out what consensus is and then maybe going the other way. And it's hard for me to think in terms of uh, business economics of a stronger, more profound consensus gripping the business and investment community the intellectual community, the the legal community, the the regulatory community than this notion that we are and ought to be a, a nation of small entrepreneurs, whether it's small farmers and businessmen and uh, or two guys in a garage until they get too big creating technology companies, et cetera. And you go the other way. How, how did this, uh, you know, how did you come to this? We'll get through, I mean, basically the book explains it, but how did you come to this, uh, this idea of of writing uh, this and, and arguing this position?
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, it, it just, I live in Washington, DC. I run a think tank here and, and, it, and, and, and I've been seeing over the last, you know, Ten years, but in particular over the last five years, a growing animus uh, towards uh, big business and, and, and a growing narrative that it basically says the following: uh, you know, big companies are rapacious; uh, they're they they only get big by cheating. Uh, small companies are the sources of all you know innovation, job growth, and and all sorts of other good things that we want as a society. And I was. I, I, I could see that that was just wrong. And then I started to dig into the data. And, and when you really look at the evidence, uh, you find that it's pretty much the opposite. Uh, you know, big companies outperform small on pretty much every single indicator. And I just felt uh, my colleague, Mike Linden, I just felt it was important to you know lay out the counter argument so people could could see it and not just get. You know attracted to this this really almost
0: urban myth now and, and my apologies for not mentioning michael lind is uh is uh fully uh, the co-author of, of the book i uh, the you mentioned it just over the past few years or being in washington dc I, I as a historian would say that uh for many many decades uh and and uh, the notion of large uh probably uh through in, uh industrialization henry ford and so forth uh creating large enterprises very successful enterprises uh that uh that you know the the counter-narrative has been very, very strong for the better part of the last century. And then there's a book, which you're obviously riffing off, Schumacher's Another Economist's book, uh, Small is Beautiful, which takes the exact opposite view. But you provide some really good examples, and I, I think it would be wonderful if you could share some just as, as enticers of how deeply rooted from Jefferson, our view of, of Thomas Jefferson and others all the way up through, the 20, up through Schumacher and beyond the, the bias in favor of this simple uh, uh, preferred notion that, uh, it, it, America is based on these smaller entities and that their greatness comes from these smaller entities. And, and you, you know, there, there, it's a long list. It's not just a few, uh, you know, a few tidbits.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned Jefferson and there was a, clearly a a major schism of, uh, of the, of the politics back then was Jeffersonian versus Hamiltonianism. And, and Mike and I are Hamiltonians, uh, And we're trying to channel that. Hamilton had this view, uh, I thought, which was the right view, which is he wanted to, not to use a a Trumpian term, but he wanted to make America great. Uh, He understood that for America to be a real independent country uh, that could separate itself from England and be powerful, it had to have a thriving industrial base. And that couldn't be done on the basis of of small property owners and uh, uh, farmers and craftsmen. It had to be done on the basis of industry, and that required size. And Jefferson was antithetically opposed to that um, the, the what, what he was in the camp we call producer Republicans and, and by that he meant in the Jefferson model, everybody is an owner. so you either own your own farm or you own your own little crafts shop or, or your own little business and therefore you become an independent person who who can participate in democracy. And, and it was really a, a, a struggle for Jefferson and, and others of some of the others of the founders to really conceive a, how could you have a democracy when you had, quote, wage slaves? Uh, to them, uh, wage slaves, in other words, people working for another company, were almost in, in, you know, interchangeable with serfs or slaves, real slaves. So there was this real push from the very beginning of the formation of the country to push back against large firms from this democratic uh, tradition. Uh, c- clearly, that was wrong. Uh, we, we've had thriving democracy in much of the 20th century uh, when most people are employed uh, by uh, work for others, so uh, but that was a long-standing tradition, and and, and it informed uh, our politics
0: really going forward. You know, I'm, I'm in, based in Pittsburgh, and you know, they're, they're, I'm not originally from Pittsburgh, but the, uh, there are plenty of street signs and uh, tour and historical markers about uh, Henry Frick and Andrew Carnegie uh, and uh, you know, U.S. Steel, the size of U.S. Steel, and how Frick managed the whole thing. And it was not, you know, not, not a, uh, it's not a benign telling. Again, it's it's big versus small. Uh, and uh, and then when American industry really takes off, you I, I now realize in part due to your book that the you know the reputation of an incredibly successful enterprise like Ford and, and U.S. Steel in the public imagination now, if for at least a certain section of the population, is substantially if not entirely negative uh, for 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 many of the reasons that that you identify in the book of this uh, you know crushing bias towards uh to, towards smaller enterprises.
1: Yeah, there's a famous um, uh, economist, uh, economic historian, Alfred Chandler,
0: who's written you know,
1: the cl- classic books on American industrialization. And, and in one of the Chandler books, I, I think it might have been Strategy and Structure. Uh, he talks about this notion where he says, you know, if there was public polling back in the late 1890s, in the first decade of the 1900s, Uh, the polling would have been very clear that Americans did not want to see the rise of big companies like U.S. Steel or Standard Oil or even Ford Motor Company. You know, they really were committed to, you know, small craft oriented companies, uh, uh, small farmers, you know, bucolic little towns, and and they didn't want industrialization. And yet, uh, when you really look at industrialization, what it did for our country, sure, it no question there were there were problems with it pollution uh, worker exploitation and the like but without that w- without large factories without large corporations uh, number one we we never would have been able to fight uh, in world war ii we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have won there's no question we wouldn't have won in world war ii uh, but we wouldn't have gotten rich we, we wouldn't have become the most prosperous nation in the world and it was it was men like carnegie and frick and and, and all these other amazing entrepreneurs that took the big risks built these giant corporations to make america the you know the leader so again that's not to say that there should be this idyllic you know adoration of of these of these men or 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 that industrialization was an unalloyed good but we shouldn't dismiss we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. it did an enormous amount of good to the country and then back then once it happened uh you know once industrialization came about and the progressive era came which was really The progressives embraced industrialization, but they wanted it managed as opposed to the populists before them who opposed it. Um, Once we got that, then, uh, you know, most Americans said, boy, this is pretty good. And and by the 50s and 60s, you know, big companies were seen as the real progressive forces in America, in part because they were unionized. So um, it it really has changed since then.
0: You know, there's a great irony about Henry Ford that he... he, uh... Uh, participates in this, but in his in his dotage he he builds the village. I forget where it's in suburban Detroit somewhere, which is this bucolic a, a village that looks a lot like the village he grew up in, which uh, was a, a casting back to a pre-industrial time. I I also uh, in investment theory we also ran into the same thing with Bur- not uh, Chandler but Burl and Means. Uh, I think you quote them, but the Modern Corporation and Private Property, nineteen thirty-two, which is relevant for for the history of my. Uh, profession within economics where, again, these modern publicly traded entities, the scale corporations, in in 1932, Berlin Means are saying these are modern, you know, it's a modern form of serfdom. And uh, they are analyzing it and acknowledging it, but also, they're also judging it. Skipping forward to the modern day, whether it's Schumacher's Small is Beautiful or... You know, as you pointed out at the very top of of the interview, uh, we're we're going through another period of perhaps heightened, even heightened, hostility to uh, large successful successful entities, which which makes your your uh, your book all, all the more timely. You, you spend a lot of time throwing a lot of data at showing that. You know, kind of pound for pound uh, in terms of creativity, productivity, health insurance, stability, uh, compensation, standard of living. I'm sure I'm missing a bunch of the categories, but you rigorously go through each of them and make the you know, uh, again, you're not suggesting that only big is beautiful, but that the the uh, accusations against the the large corporations simply are untrue. In fact, in many cases, it's the reverse. Do you want to you know highlight some of those uh, some of that empirical analysis that constitutes you know a significant portion of the book?
1: Sure, and, and most of this is really comes directly from U.S. government statistics, uh, which I think are pretty unbiased. Uh, and, and again, one of the key points of this is not to say that every single firm in these size categories is like this, but just we're saying, look, let's look at the average. So for example, if your workers in large firms earn 54% more than workers in the smallest firms, um, workers in large, excuse me, large firms employ a higher share of women, higher share of minorities, higher share of veterans. Uh, they pay 85% more supplemental pay. They pay 3.9 times more in retirement benefits. Uh, they're 16 17% more productive. They export more. Uh, they do more, way more R and D. Uh, they pollute the environment less. They injure their workers less.
0: So that 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 polluting the environment, which very timely, you know, they pollute the environment less because of the scale efficiency of the large business, because they're regulated more, because they have to have more oversight. Yeah, all of understood. All of the above. Um, you know, we 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 think of big
1: corporations as you know big polluters sometimes, but because those are the ones we see, we we don't see they don't write articles in the paper about the small companies dumping you know toxic chemicals in the little creek behind them. But when you look at the evidence and the studies that have been done on these large corporations, they spend significantly more on pollution control than than small ones for for really you know three big reasons. One economies of scale they, they can afford uh, you know environmental managers and, and, and amortize those costs over more workers number two they're definitely there' the, the odds of getting inspected by EPA or OSHA for worker safety or other kinds of uh, regulatory inspections much much higher if you're a big firm and so they know that and the, by the way the fines are much higher as well proportional and then lastly large firms have a reputation uh, they have reputational capital, and and they know that that can be destroyed or certainly diminished if they have a big you know problem with pollution. We saw that for, obviously with with you know British Petroleum and and the offshore oil or Exxon, uh, and they're still paying the price for that. So
0: again, not to say that all big firms are great, uh, but on average they they pollute less. And then you know with the other measures that you looked at the the uh, patents, uh, the the intellectual creativity, the ability to have a research function. Uh, I mean, the list, uh, went on and on that, you know, scale really does matter or big is beautiful, uh, for very, you know, even when you're not talking about negative measures of success, which pollution kind of, uh, unavoidable consequence of, of, uh, large scale manufacturing or large scale economic endeavors, but just on the soft side, as you said, you know, who gets employed, the standard of living. Also, I think you had a, a, a study of, um, the, uh, or references also to as I mentioned the patents and the creativity I mean I I've, you know kind of' obvious you think about it but you also it's really interesting that that is documented and important to be documented to make that point that these large firms just are produce more intellectual capital is is part of your argument in a sense
1: yeah absolutely I mean so you, you compare small firms and they do significantly more research element um, I mean, one of the mythologies out there, there. There's two big arguments that the defenders of small business will make. We, you know, when you explain wages and pollution, and all that, they'll, they'll come back on two core arguments. One is they create jobs, which we talk about at the moment, and secondly is that they're just more innovative. That if we want innovation, we've got to rely on small firms, and that was really uh, largely because of in, uh, limits in terms of how the government measured innovation. And there's been a number of. There's a whole new data set that the National Science Foundation did. And a number of economists have analyzed that. And basically what they found was that when you, uh, when you control for size, large corporations are equally as innovative as small ones uh, it, you know, in the same sector. Uh, overall, big companies are more innovative because they tend to be in more innovation-based sectors like electronics or you know, life sciences and all. But even when you look within a sector, large companies are equally as innovative uh, in terms of producing uh, new pat- patents and R&D and the like. So again, it's this sort of mythology we have in our mind. You know, every everybody is Steve Jobs uh, coming out of a garage. There's no question those people are important, uh, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that big companies can be innovative. They're not just copiers, as sort of the dominant wisdom su- suggests.
0: And then also it's the large companies and you have this, I think uh, it's in your book about the semiconductor industry and who left the semiconductor companies to find found uh, subsequent companies like Gordon Moore and so forth that, uh, you know, the large companies can spawn the, uh, the garage uh, garage kids. I mean, the, the fact that the, There are examples of kids leaving from Harvard is the exception that it's more people who are uh, from their dorm rooms. It's more the example of people leaving large companies to to found successful small companies that then in turn become large companies. But it still leads back less from to the dorm room and more to the other companies. Is that a a fair? Yeah, absolutely.
1: They they gain. uh... You know, the average age of a, of, a, of an entrepreneur, you know, by somebody who starts a, a technology business in the U.S. is in the 40s. It's not in the 20s. You know, we we hear you know, there's a few software tends to be younger, but overall, people wait until they're average in their 40s to start a company because it's incredibly hard to do. And you have to have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge and, and, and have made mistakes along the way. And big companies are really good training grounds for that. Um, and, and
0: so if we didn't have those big companies, we wouldn't be having as many technology startups. Uh, today, I don't want to date the interview too much, but uh, Ross Perot uh, passed away yesterday and is, is today's headline. And he's a good example. Having started at, a, um, you know, at IBM and very successful uh, at IBM, then he goes off and creates an equally large and successful firm uh, twice <laughs> two times around, uh, uh, you know. So uh, again, maybe that's a generational thing where, uh, uh in Ross Perot's day, they weren't working out of garages, but still, it, it is a, an example of your point. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. You know, um, so the 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 let's push it back a little bit though. That you know, on the soft side, uh, the real the empirical reality, is very different than the the narrative of, of small is beautiful. But I want to go back to the mythology and, and uh, push on that a little bit. The, the, main, the main street gets wiped out by Walmart. The main street gets wiped out by Amazon. The uh, smaller businesses, which in your rendering are fine, but they're just not as, they just can't move as quickly or do as much as a larger business. They get wiped out. And the feel of big is beautiful is the big is not. And the small uh, is beautiful. The feel of that is, it's not, subjectively, it doesn't seem to me just to be a mythology, you know, there are in in city centers and in in small towns around the, uh, the this country, there's more to it than just mythology. Or is even that? Or would you dispute that? And that it's it really is just a mythology that these small businesses are, that the communities are just as well having a Walmart rather than ten smaller businesses in the center.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's any question that communities, uh, communities, states, countries, yeah, they're better off if they have uh, bigger companies that. For example, one of the things we did in the book is we we just did a simple correlation coefficient between per capita income in states and the share of jobs in large companies. It's very positive. So a state like Massachusetts, which is near the top in terms of share of jobs in large companies, uh, also at the top or near the top in terms of per capita income, uh, the more small businesses you have in your state, the lower your per capita income one of the points we make in the book is one of the single best indicators. If you want to know what a country's per capita income is, you know, are they rich or they poor? The single, one of the single best indicators is you just ask what percentage of jobs, uh, our people are self-employed. Uh, and if you have a high share of self-employed, you're pretty much going to be a poor impoverished country. Uh, if you have a high share of, of, of people working for corporations or companies, you're going to be a rich country. Uh, so, you know, sure. There's always going to be small businesses. You know, there's a, there's a reason why large corporations don't get into the dry cleaning store or uh, you know the whatever you know, um, restaurants and things like that for the for a lot of it um, because there aren't there aren't big economies of scale there. But one of the things that it's easy to forget, I, I we cite a story, uh, a sixty minute story where the host Scott Pelley was uh, bemoaning the fact that in in this town Newton, Iowa, where a Maytag factory closed. He was bemoaning that there were all these small companies that, you know, weren't getting bank lending, and this was a catastrophe. Well, the reason they weren't getting bank lending was because nobody had a job, and nobody could spend any money because the major engine of that entire region, Maytag, had closed down and moved to Mexico. Uh, So the, you know, the men's pants stores and and the pizza shop, those were all dependent upon the income coming in and and the spending from the workers and, and the company itself. So we lose sight of that sometimes. And we have the sort of mythology that we can all rely on just small companies. When you look at sort of who drives US competitiveness and, and exporting, uh, it, it really is large corporations. They're the they're the companies that are out fighting the fight in the world to make you know the US prosperous so that dry cleaners and clothing stores and barbershops
0: can Actually, survive. They may be f- f- uh, fighting the fight. They may also be losing the narrative war, because uh, I, I, you know th- that narrative, that mythology, is still so so dominant. I, something, I, and this is more an editorial comment. Uh, uh, if we take your analysis to be correct, and I have no reason to believe that it isn't still the the uh, the narrative, the the uh, uh, the narrative needs to be more balanced because it it uh, you know that the perception is uh, as you point out in uh, sixty minutes and so forth, the perception is just so strongly rooted in the other direction uh, that uh, big business isn't going to get its due. Uh, while unless they get a better grip on on the narrative of business, because right now that I don't think that they have one, it's still, you know, Facebook and and uh, the current large technology companies that are are under siege, they they are facing these same problems, and they I, I don't know that they're helping their causes very much. I don't I don't see them trying to point out the the uh, successes that they have engendered in in society. But that's that's more an aside. One of the things that I was struck by in your book. Uh, and I, I wouldn't have known or appreciated is that it's not just a matter of narrative. It's not just a matter matter of mythology. It's not just a matter of of uh, popular impressions and stories. Uh, the regulatory and legal environment was leaning very, very heavily, and has leaned a couple times in different directions, but more of the time it's leaning heavily in terms of the. Uh, producer, producer, republicanism side, and uh, I may have gotten that term backwards. I'm sorry, but the, that uh, in terms of the smaller side from from the 19th century, and then uh, notably in 20th century ju- jurisprudence involving. Brandeis can you you know highlight some of that it was completely unknown to me and, and really a fascinating section of the book
1: sure sure and, and I would like to come back a little bit to, 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 if we can at some point just to talk a little bit about why business is, is demonized. and some of it they have brought on themselves I don't mean to suggest that they're you know uh, li- Lily white here they they they've have certainly some have made mistakes and there's problems there <laughs> but to your point we've actually gone through a number of different phases so when Large corporations emerged uh, really early 1900s uh, in a wide variety of sectors, including retail. We oftentimes forget about the first Walmart, which was A and um, There was a huge pushback from small businesses. Uh, they lobbied at the state level for all sorts of r- rules and regulations to protect them from competition. Um, things like trying to get taxes on 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 uh, bigger companies, uh, resale price maintenance, uh, even outright bans, um, and, and And pushing for antitrust, that largely failed, uh, mostly mostly because Americans were, they they loved getting the convenience and the price of the big companies. And so that all really shifted after World War II. And instead of it being the small business agenda being, well, let's try to roll this back, uh, it, it became, well, let's instead try to subsidize and protect small business. So the first phase really before World War II was push back, attack large companies, antitrust, and others. And then it became, well, let's subsidize them. And so, for example, and protect them, from 1953 to 2017, Congress passed 68 pieces of legislation explicitly favoring small business, uh, like the Small Business Job Protection Act, the SEC Small Business Advocate Act. They even created their own agency, the Small Business Administration. Uh, Can you imagine if Congress had created a large business administration? Uh, you know, or a committee in Congress called the Big Corporation Committee, but they both the Senate and House have small business committees. So that was really the push. It was like, well, we're going to we're going to exempt them from regulations. We're going to give them subsidies, like subsidized loans, uh, specialized procurement favors, and that seemed to be a, a stalemate or a standoff. Small business was satisfied with that. It, everything was going along fine, really, until about five years ago when. Uh, you you alluded to Brand Justice Brandeis uh, he was a Supreme Court Justice back in the I believe the 30s uh, and before that though he was the leading the leading advocate the public intellectual and attorney fighting against big corporations uh, he said that at uh, one point famous quote uh, that any large company any large corporation has, has the mark of Cain on them in other words the only way you could get big was by sinning. he he, he explicitly said there were no no such things as economies of scale. So in his mind, the only reason you got big was you you were manipulating the market and cheating and therefore government should break it up. That's come back now uh, in a pretty serious way, really, in the last four or five years. And you've seen a big push now to reinvigorate that pre-war agenda of antitrust. Let's break up the big banks. Let's break up the airlines. Let's break up big tech. Uh, and, and attributing all sorts of societal and economic ills to this, quote unquote, rise of business concentration. Um, and it's to me a very flawed, um, it's a very flawed and harmful agenda. Uh, and, and not one last point. On this: not to say that antitrust shouldn't be an active mode going after uh, bad behavior or as antitrust scholars call it conduct. Absolutely. It should be going after un- anti-competitive conduct. That's very different than going back to an agenda of just saying,
0: just because a company's big or has some market share that government should break it up. Well, and uh, can, can we do a little bit of the legal framework uh, just because it was, uh, and again, during the Depression and... Uh The Roosevelt administration, uh, the regulation of business, who you could sell to and at what prices and uh, what got, uh, you know, it got pretty feisty compared to what certainly what we're used to now. You could argue even, uh, you know, with uh, um, air travel uh, up until uh, I think it was President Carter uh, deregulated it, that, uh, you know, it was it was minutely regulated to maintain lots of small airlines and uh, that, you know, that it was a much heavier regulatory framework than I had realized. And despite that, despite, uh, th- that framework, the large corporations, uh, the U S deals and the others, uh, develop and emerge in the first half of the, of the, uh, of the 20th century, despite having again, uh, significant regulatory, uh, obstacles presented to them.
1: Absolutely. Uh, but you know, one thing people forget, uh, the U S banking system is very different than most banking systems in the world. Uh, we pushed for what's called unit banking. And, and, and really, I believe until, was it 79? I can't remember what we wrote. Uh, banks in the US were chartered at the state level and therefore were very small. We had over 10,000 banks. You compare that to a country like Canada, which had maybe six uh, major banks. Uh, so that was one area that people forget about. We, we had very small banks and it really wasn't until Congress took replaced that and, and said you can merge across the state lines that we finally got real economies of scale in banking. But the same pushback was going on in in the 20s and 30s against, uh, you know, quote unquote, big retail. So for example, you had the Robinson-Patman Act, uh, which was uh, essentially saying that you couldn't discount uh, a price, Uh, uh, you know, large wholesalers, I'm sorry, large retailers, had economies of scale so they could discount and the small companies couldn't. And so Robinson-Patman made that difficult. uh, and you had, you had you had entire states that that were passing laws like this. Um, so there was a huge pushback. You had a Florida law in 1933 that targeted chain stores, uh, and it really. And then on top of that, you had you know a big push on antitrust. You looking at big companies like U.S. Steel and the like. But it, partly what happened was consumers. Uh, sort of realized this was all good for them. And, and then I think we can't underestimate the impact of the war, uh, or two. Mm-hmm. It was really, as, as Roosevelt talked about the arsenal, we, we won because we were the arsenal of democracy and and Americans saw on a daily basis, uh, the river Rouge plant being, uh, I think the Ford plant cranking out, you know, fighter planes to go and attack and you know, take on the Nazis um you know so that was pretty clear that america won the war because of our large corporations who retooled and 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 produced weapons so we could win the fight uh and then you know really i got to say after that it, it, the battle was pretty much over uh everybody accepted large companies and uh, galbraith the famous economist john kenneth galbraith was you know he had a in one of his books he talked about the entrepreneur as being sort of a sorry neurotic figure <laughs> you know money grubbing and insecure Uh, but the large corporate manager was really the one that was, you know, you know, guiding our country into, into, into the, into the right future. Uh, That's very different now, as as you can imagine, but we we shouldn't forget that, that, you know, from say 1948 to even, you know, 1970, large corporations were seen by most Americans as a pretty progressive,
0: important part of our, of our society. Well, they're going to, they're going to, they've got the work cut out for them, uh, uh, they, they've got their work cut out for them right now. I have to say, and I, I work, I pretty much just by nature of my job, the type of investing I do, I'm sort of on the side of the, uh, of the large corporations just because of the way my job is set up, but it, it, sometimes it is a labor, uh, uh it has to be a labor of love because it is, it is hard because, you know, they, again, they do less than they ought to on, um. On, on, this narrative. You know, we, we invest, uh, now and again in, par- in public statements in, in pharmaceutical companies and the vilification of pharmaceutical companies, just as an example, is, is, is quite substantial and some of it may be justified, but <laughs> they're engaged in life-saving research day in and day out. Not all of it works. And, you know, one in 10 of their products, one in 50 of their products succeed, which is enough to cover the costs for the other 49. So they charge a lot, but, uh, they they do a terrible job at, uh, at advocacy, and I think uh, uh, their television commercials do not help. But uh, that's that's an aside. Uh, well, I just, just to that point, I, uh, you know, one
1: of the things that was striking to us when we wrote this book is when you listen to what large corporations say, they they virtually will not say they just cannot say. You know what being large is good. They won't say that. What they say instead is. We're a large corporation, and we buy a lot from small companies. We're enabling the small business economy. So when you're when you can't even have a narrative that says, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm big and I'm proud," um, they're so they're so gun shy of even saying that now. Uh, that that does make it hard to, you know, to say to Americans, "Wait a minute, let's rethink the narrative." Your large corporations again. Not everyone is, you know, you you, have, you know, companies like Wells Fargo and Volkswagen and, and others who have really Know done unethical things. There's no question about that. Um, but
0: overall, large corporations just don't tooth their horn anymore. That's that's one of the problems. So let's let's get to the policy prescription. So I you don't really spend a lot of time on this. So I'll chime in that, given my my position that my number one policy prescription is uh, a uh, a more uh, fair and balanced narrative. Uh, your policy prescriptions are more on the actual policy side. as that would even the playing field a little bit. Do you want to, to, to highlight those?
1: Yeah, I mean, we really kind of have two or three main policy prescriptions. One is size neutrality. Uh, it is striking how tilted the playing field is to small businesses. Most people listen to that and they think, what the heck am I talking about? But when you look at the evidence from Congressional Budget Office and others, small companies are, have about $100 billion a year in tax subsidies that they get that if they were larger corporations, they would not be getting. Um, if you're a small company with less than 14, less than 15 workers, it's legal for you to discriminate against somebody on the basis of race, gender, and religion. Why would we allow that? Um, there's procurement preferences where government will buy from a small company, even though it costs them more. Um, there's all these regulatory exemptions. So what we argue in the book is, look, let's treat everybody the same when it comes to, if we, if, if we don't think that discrimination is proper, which it's not, then Nobody should be allowed to discriminate. Um, you know, if you think you should pay your taxes, everybody should pay the same amount of taxes. Uh, small companies, by the way, are much more likely to cheat on their taxes, much more likely than large corporations. So, what we argue for is, is size neutrality, number one. Uh, number two would be to really balance uh, antitrust, particularly the way it's going now, where You know, I wrote a talked a little bit about in the book, but I also wrote an op ed on on the airline industry, which everybody loves to hate the airline industry and thinks it's a giant monopoly or or oligopoly. Well, if you look at the facts, um, according to the Department of Transportation, airline industry profits for the last three or four years have been below the Dow average. Um, Their capital investment rates are significantly above the national average for CapEx their price declines have been much faster than they've they've, their prices have risen much lower than than the rate of inflation. Um, what's not, what what are we complaining about here? Uh, their productivity, by the way, is one of the fastest of any industry in America. And so we look at that and the sort of the, the knee jerk thing is, Oh, big big airlines. You know, there's four major airlines. Now there must be something wrong. We'd be better off with eight. And yet when you look at performance price, investment profits, um, and, 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 uh, you know, a, a couple other factors, uh, productivity, it's a
0: pretty darn good, good industry. I, yeah. I, I happen to fly a lot for, for business all the time, frankly. And I, uh, this is where, uh, impi- I empirically can, or you, you've got the empirical data. I uh, anecdotally concur, and I would disagree with the narrative that, uh, that the needs uh, to be broken up, uh. The it is such a capital intensive and such a difficult industry that having a lot of small vendors try to do it is uh, it's so complex to run an airline well that uh, it leads naturally to competition. Uh, you know the the uh, the phone companies are the same way. Uh, my former partner used to refer to the phone company because he came of age when there was the phone company. In, you know, modern antitrust period, it was broken up. It had, you know, I don't know what the total number of baby bells was. And then there was a long distance division, a total of nine. They very quickly consolidated to, you know, basically two or three at this point, two main ones, and then two, two contenders who are likely to merge and become just a third. And uh, much of their business came from, from just wireless. So uh, we're back to not quite the phone company, but pretty close. And there's a reason for it. You know, it is such a capital intensive industry that you would waste an enormous amount of money if you had five or six people trying building all of the towers, laying all of the fiber, offering all the services, duplicating all of the computers. And so it's a natural oligopoly that invites government scrutiny. But the basic business dynamic of capital intensive industries is greater than sherman antitrust it just is and um, you know there, there has to be the acknowledgement of that again the narrative is not that way no one's going to like the phone company lily tomlin still still uh still prevails in terms of the narrative and and some of the companies uh do themselves a disservice with their customer service but um uh, the reality is that uh, uh you know the capital intensity intensity of those businesses dictates concentration so oh. You know, one of the points we make in, the, in,
1: in one of the chapters on antitrust is we talk about several different kinds of industries that naturally lend themselves to scale uh, big companies, sometimes oligopoly. One is uh, scale industries uh, um, like autos, for example. A uh, second would be network industries uh, like the telephone uh, or technology companies. And a third are innovation industries where you just have to spend, like, like the pharmaceutical, you just have to spend an enormous amount of money on R&D. So you have to have scale. But, you know, again, when you look at sort of everybody says, oh, you know, the, the big cable companies and the big phone companies, uh, they make too much money and um, they have bad customer service because they're all like What's interesting, if you go and you look at European data where they have much more competition because they have what's called forced unbundling. They 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 allow competitors to come in and use their wires. The customer service is actually the same, <laughs> The rating of customer service is no different. Uh, this is just a tough industry to have good customer service on because everybody complains about your your the company when they haven't put their you know their router in the right way or they've got malware on the computer. So it had nothing to do with that. And it turns out the rate of profits are pretty much the same. In fact, slightly a little bit higher in Europe where they have more competitors. So again, lots of mythology out there. Uh, if you thought that there was we had too much uh, oligopoly in our communication system. You'd expect to see higher profits, and you don't see that. Uh, in part because you got cable competing intensely with with the telephone, with competing mm-hmm. with mobile and you know we're doing this conversation
0: now not on the telephone. Uh, so um, there's lots of technological competition here as well. So the book came out in March of 2018, so it's about a year old. Uh, what what has been uh, the reception either among the narrative controllers, whoever they may be? Or and/ or the regulatory parties and the big businesses that, that you work with, if I may ask
1: sure, so among the regulatory parties I, I, I think there's there's been very good response I, We've we certainly talked to a lot of uh, folks in government who are often in regulatory roles, and they they appreciate the analysis and the, and, and the review of the literature and the like. Um, I think in terms of big business. Uh, I, I think they're still too uh, gun shy to, to, to keep company with you. Yeah, they're too gun shy to basically come out and, and, and say, this is, you know, this is the message. Uh, they also, I believe, although in the last four or five months, particularly with the presidential campaign, they've, I think, begun to see the handwriting on the wall. But I think many of them have had their head in the sand and didn't really see the emerging threat that's coming. Uh, I think we're in a, uh, an emerging populist era. Uh, you know, Even President Trump has said a lot of things. You know, As a Republican, it's unusual for a president to say as many critiques of large corporations as, as the president has. But we're seeing this bipartisan rise of anti-corporate populism. And I think big companies have been have their head in the sand and, and have been slow to wake up to that, to that threat and that challenge and how they should respond. And then, as you said, you know, what about the people who shape the narrative? I would say that we've uh, been losing ground there. We've certainly been noticed a lot of people writing on the other side will cite our work and attack our work, uh, which is good. But the narrative on the other side has gotten even bigger, uh, as you have some presidential candidates who've really decided they want to run on this uh, populist, big, big is bad, small is beautiful narrative. And that's uh, growing. You, you've, you've got uh, the chairman of the House, uh, Judiciary Antitrust Committee announcing he's going to hold hearings now on 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 big tech and big companies in general. So I, I fear that um, it's going to get worse. And, and, and at one level, I don't mind, I think it's healthy to have a debate about this, but this whole set of issues. But what is striking to me is the amount of uh, misinformation and, and, and intentional misinformation uh, that's being put out there um, you know, for give you an example, everybody now has come to the conclusion that, quote unquote, concentration ratios are up. In other words, all the industries are becoming more concentrated. And when you look at the data and, and to be clear, the data, the latest data aren't out, but the latest data you can get. You know, what you find is that industry concentration has gone up in a lot of industries, but it's gone up from really, really low levels to low levels. <laughs> And so, mm -hmm.
0: you know, no antitrust economist would worry that the top four firms. Nothing like the turn, nothing like a century ago or the turn of the century a century ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms of industry concentration. You
1: have some industries that went from the top four firms having 12% of the market to having 16% of the market. In other words, they each have four. Nothing meaningless. And yet, the people on the other side will intentionally say, uh, knowing that it's overstated or an exaggeration, look and see all of the industries where you've seen concentration go up. Well, That's because they went up a teeny bit and and it, it was meaningless. So you see that over and over again. You see that also, for example, in the argument that many people make now, that the rate of small business formation is down and therefore it's because we have too many big firms. The rate of small business formation is down, but we're the only analysts that I've been able to find who actually looked at it by industry. And when you look at it by industry, what you find is no relationship to concentration. There are industries where concentration ratios went down. In other words, they got more competitive, and startups, startups went down. Uh, so everybody loves the narrative, and it's sort of the they they, they it's a it's a catch-all argument, the catch-all theory. You can blame any problem: low wages, low productivity, uh, low startups. Uh, you can blame any problem on on this purported rise of concentration, and it's it's frankly shoddy, uh, and oftentimes intentionally shoddy.
0: Well, in, in that context, your book is extremely uh, uh, well-timed if if the intensity of the debate is, uh, is is building, as as you suggest it is, and I I, I have to agree with you. Uh, the book is Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Myth of Small Business. My guest has been Robert Atkinson, uh, founder and president uh, of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. This is a timely work. It is, uh, you know, perhaps controversial, but it is eye-opening. And I, I agree with you that You know, people on either side of this debate, and perhaps it's unfortunate that there are just two sides rather than a middle, but uh, either side of this debate should familiarize themselves with with the arguments and specifically the both the history and the empirical data that that you have collected. I mean, it is uh, really is eye opening. So, Rob, thank you so much for joining uh, joining me today. Thank you, Dan. It was a pleasure.